I've always written things in Hot Chip as well as Joe writing things but I suppose if something's really quite specific to me me alone in some way then I feel like it makes sense for it to be a solo thing you never really know what's the best home for it but you just try and base things on gut feeling You're listening to Record Room, a podcast where we meet the artists behind an album we love. I'm Will Felker. I think it's safe to say that Alexis Taylor is best known for his work with Hot Chip, and the popularity of that group might overshadow what he's released on his own. I don't think you could divide Hot Chip fans neatly, but if you tried, two groups might emerge. On the one hand, you have Hot Chip fans that obsessively follow the core duo of Alexis Taylor and Joe Goddard, and on the other is a group that don't follow them because they came to know Hot Chip at a concert. When Hot Chip performs, they triple in size. Sometimes four to six additional people support them on stage. And that's all good. There's a lot of music to navigate there and a lot of dots to connect. It's just an interesting phenomenon that occurs with popular groups. So when Taylor's fourth solo album came in the form of Beautiful Thing, we jumped at the chance to talk to him about this new project and what longevity looks like at this point in his career. Here's Alexis Taylor on Record Room. beautiful thing I wrote for Hot Chip but then I ended up recording it for my own record Oh Baby I wrote for myself but then Joe from Hot Chip produced it and it's a solo record of mine so the lines get blurred sometimes if that makes any sense yeah you keep it in the family yeah I understand on a more personal level how do you balance having a family with having a prolific output as yourself and with Hot Chip and you tour um, pretty extensively, and you and Joe and together or alone, you're, you're very 
uh, quick to put things out. The one thing I don't do is really long tours. I'm always trying to be back home to see my wife and daughter, you know, after two to three weeks, which is quite short touring for, for some bands. That's just because I would like to see them and not, you know, I see my daughter grow up separately from me and miss things that she's doing. And so I, I manage it in that way. Also, when my daughter wasn't at school when she was younger, she would travel on the road with my wife and me and all of Hot Chip. She would go on the tour bus, she would watch the shows. When she got older, she started occasionally playing percussion with Hot Chip at the end of the show. You know, she's quite involved in it. So um, that was my way of, of balancing things or keeping my family close. And that worked for me. It may have actually been quite hard for Hot Chip, other band members sometimes, to always have, you know, my family there. But that was, that was what I wanted to do and uh, it's meant that my daughter is very aware of the job that I do and I do know some people where their kids are teenagers when they first come to watch the dad's band play and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that but that's sort of so different from how it's been in in my family um, I like the fact that she's grown up with music around her and got to know all the people in Hot Chip and other people that I play with and just sort of has a general understanding of how music works I do write songs that are kind of about the very issue of missing your loved ones or, you know, the, the stress and strain that you put yourself and them under by travelling and being away and all the different worlds in which I kind of exist, like staying up late and DJing, doing shows and travelling, become the focus of some of my thoughts and songs that I've written are about how to kind of how I feel about that and how I try and maintain a balance or, you know, sometimes fail to maintain a good balance. And, uh, you know, it's kind of what I'm going through is is what is written about in the songs. I think you're a very observational songwriter, too. That always has been clear in a, all your work, you know, um, which is why when the tone shifts to something a little more melancholic, it's not too involved, you know what I mean? And, yeah. And that does come through a lot on this this new record. And as far as sonically, though, one thing I really like is like the dub influence across the songs. And yeah, that struck me. These songs have big bodies. <laughs> you know, was that intentional, or did you go in thinking you were going to do that, or was that part of Tim's involvement in the record? It was definitely partly to do with Tim's involvement, but it was also what I wanted the record to be like. I don't think from talking to Tim while we were making the record, I'm not sure he's the biggest reggae fan and I'm quite a big reggae fan and uh, really like dub music as well and particularly in the last 10 years or so listened a lot to those rhythm and sound releases which are obviously dub influenced but kind of coming from a sort of German techno place as well so Tim and I would sort of talk about you know wanting to get this kind of atmosphere in a track or take some kind of influence from that but not make an out and out reggae song um, I personally would be happy to make a straight up reggae record <laughs> there's um, time <laughs> but, but Tim was like no 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 listen, that's, I feel uncomfortable about that so the dub influence is there but it wasn't it wasn't the you know the main thing we were thinking about it was just one of the things we were thinking about and I'd say we talked about ambient music quite a lot and thought about that when we were making the kind of sounds that you hear in the record we did a lot of listening to things like Jesus Blood 
never failed me yet by Gavin Bryars, which is not an ambient record, but it's a kind of minimalist record. The kind of way that that really takes its time to come alive as a track over 20 minutes. That that was something that I was getting at a little bit with the song There's Nothing to Hide. Um, that kind of possibility of revealing something musically through repetition and through sort of minimalist um, approach to production other things we referenced were like we both really like royal trucks and we didn't try and make anything that sounds like them but there would be nice moments where some of the kind of harsher noises that the sherman filter bank would create on beautiful thing would remind us of accelerated by royal trucks in terms of the sonics of it not the groove not the songwriting not the vocal style um and we didn't set out to do that but we were just like oh that that's really pleasing because it's a bit like if royal trucks had made a kind of house tune or if they'd made a disco tune or something like that those are the ways in which we really made the record we weren't we weren't sitting there planning to make something like other things but we knew from talking in advance what records we both liked and felt like that was a good sort of beginning to the process. I feel you I feel you I wanted to let you know I feel you I feel you I wanted to let you know I feel you When you're lonesome When you're praying When you're crying with joy or tears I feel you Let's realize the words flowing out of my head I feel you I feel you From my head down reverb on the album is really interesting it seems more labored than other elements maybe yeah to have reverb at all that's audible and present in the mix was quite a new thing for me because i've always been quite anti-reverb on my voice and on other instruments i made a sort of playlist for tim before we began the album of songs i liked that i'd been listening to recently and he said well like nine out of ten of these tracks all have what i would call artificial reverb and the only one that seemed to not have that was the mark hollis solo record which is recorded in a really interesting way and, and it's all about 
the playing of the musicians, but also the positioning of microphones and the positioning of those musicians within a room and the distance between them to create the kind of sound that you hear on the record. So everything else other than that, he said, the rhythm and sound records you like, the George Michael record you're talking about, um, the spiritualized record you're talking about, all of these things that you're saying, you're influenced by those as a kind of starting point for what the sound of the music could be. They all have, you know, artificially created reverbs. They weren't, they weren't about going into a cavernous room. So Tim then began making reverbs um, within whatever he was using within Logic. We also used the inside of a piano, the harp of a piano that was sat on top of a piano in my studio. It had been left there by the previous people who'd, who'd run the studio. And so anything that you hear or any sound you make in that room in my studio, you can, you can hear the strings of this disembodied harp from the piano sort of reverberating. Interesting. And so I chose to make that a feature on Dreaming Another Life. So I would play the chords on a piano, but really short staccato, one hit of each chord. And that would trigger the, the strings of the, this other harp of the piano, and it would resonate in key with those chords. And then we, we would take those and make those the kind of pad sound for the, for the chords in the, in the song. Those delays and reverbs were pretty essential to the atmosphere of the record. How was it working with Tim again? It had been a while since you guys had worked together. Yeah, we'd worked together with Hot Chip for a very short session, probably, I don't know, a week or five days in the studio um, with James Murphy and Tim Goldsworthy back in, I don't know, 2004, perhaps. For the warning? Uh, We'd already made the warning, but we sent them all of the tracks from that record, and they said, could we try and play just like we break down live in the studio make a new version of it and then they produced that which didn't go on the warning it went came out as a remix on um on the over and over dfa 12 inch so we had one session with them and at the time that we had that session i remember thinking because we were so new to the notion of somebody else producing our music rather than me and joe doing it i remember just being confused by why we'd chosen to do this you know these people were like um, people we really looked up to and had this amazing studio but as I sat in the room I was just thinking well Tim's now in the role of drum programmer but that's what Joe's really good at and, and already knows how to do and James seemed to be in the role of kind of playing stuff or helping to get live things recorded and I thought well that's kind of what I tend to do I wonder why we're like sat behind these people letting them do it I didn't, I didn't have the, the kind of confidence that it would transform our music in a way that we would like. So we kind of abandoned that plan and then just put out the warning the way we had made it. This is a period in your career, answer for yourself, but this could pertain to Hot Chip as well, where you're more open to totally. kind of... Yeah? Now, yeah. Now, yeah. Yeah. So back then I wasn't. It was right. like album number two, and I just didn't understand why we would want to change things at that point in, t- in terms of what we did. So then the years went by, and I had done three solo records, and I thought, do you know what? I'd really like a producer. I'd really like somebody else who has their own set of skills and their own perspective on what I'm doing and will bring out the best in what I do and challenge me and make make me work harder and hopefully make something really interesting sounding and i got this remix given to me by my friend eugene wang who runs a record label in san francisco i think the artist is called a non-stop and the track is called seaside tim goldsworthy had done a remix of this track on 
public release records. It was handed to me. I hadn't heard anything by Tim for years. I listened to it and I thought it was absolutely amazing. And I thought, well, do you know what? Maybe Tim's the person to, to produce this record. So I got in touch with him and he was really up for doing it. But he was also trying to retire from making music. He was beginning to study at university. He came to do a session with me and then we would have to sort of wait fairly long between each session while he had exams and different things going on. And we, then we, we kind of mapped out a plan for making the record and we had to work one week at a time, like one or one day every week for, for a sort of six-month period because he had so much else to do with his studies. Tell me a little bit about the song, um, Suspicious of Me. I like the shifting time signatures and the lyrics are wonderful. There was a song called Roll On Blank Tapes, which I wrote at the piano and thought of it being a, a kind of, a bit like a Palace Brothers, Will Oldham style song with really kind of loose drumming on it um, in, in kind of 3-4 time. Really kind of heavy hitting to like demonstrate where the one is each time that the piano chords play and I felt like Tim maybe didn't hear it that way at all and was confused when I I I think he likes that music but he just didn't hear what I'd written as sounding anything like that and so we didn't really know what to do with that track roll on blank tapes and it was just a piano and not much else and then he suggested that I get this bit of equipment called the Polyend Perk Pro drumming machine which we we ordered from Poland. It was a brand new bit of kit at the time that we were making the record, which plays the drums for you. It will play acoustic drums via 
MIDI programming. So it's essentially a kind of robotic drummer. We brought that to the studio and set it up, and we just were trying out loops that he would program and getting it to play a drum kit in combination with a chair and other things sitting around in the studio, anything that could be hit. And what happened was Tim made a kind of garagey sound, UK garagey sounding rhythm, but it was in 3-4 time because we were thinking about roll-on blank tapes. I started to jam a kind of more funky Wurlitzer way of playing roll-on blank tapes along to this strange 3-4 time robot drummer um, loop. From there, we kind of created a new instrumental track and I forgot all about roll-on blank tapes and started to use other lyrical ideas on top of that. And then I just think we both felt like it would be really funky and interesting if the song felt like a 4-4 kind of dance track or like a bit like a Morris Fulton track or something, but it's in three. So we got Leo Taylor, who's drumming with me today, to drum on top of it. And actually almost everything that Leo played is him testing out the drums I don't think he was really aware we were recording. So he was just doing quite random fills to just check the <laughs> kit. And we kept all of that in the mix. But we asked him to play in four, but along to this thing in three. That was what gave it a strange and complicated feel. I then edited it to deliberately go from the three, four sections into the four, four sections and back in a way that made sense and put the words on top of that. Even though Tim was producing it, I felt like he didn't really know quite what was going on with that song because it was so mad sounding and we both liked that but I think he thought it was a bit crazy and full on and might be hard for anyone to listen to so I had to try and you know <laughs> make it make more sense to him right then there was a nice moment where I'd been sent this unreleased Prince track called Feel You Up which there's about four different versions of it out there on the mm -hmm. on the internet but this other one surfaced in July 2017 and uh, it was radically different from all the other versions I'd heard and it was so amazing I just put it on in the studio with Tim and then he listened to that and he thought well, the sound of the the drum machine is amazing and it's really like gated reverb so then we applied that same technique mm -hmm. to the drum track the loop on Suspicious of Me and that helped it to have a suddenly like a different character and feel as a track and in terms of the words I, I wrote the words and melody just of the chorus the Suspicious of Me bit ages and ages ago but never turned it into a whole song and that was kind of about journalists who are suspicious of me they they're not all journalists but some people seem to think i can't can't possibly mean what i'm saying i'm saying things with too much irony i'm a bit of a hipster all these kind of things that sent that suggest to me they're very suspicious of me and i don't really understand why that is so that's what those lyrics are about. But they sound in the song like they could be more about a kind of relationship between two people in a you know, loving relationship and somebody's second-guessing the other one. So I like the ambiguity there, but they were actually written more about me hating people being suspicious <laughs> of me when they needn't be. The other words in the song were, I was trying to make another track, which was a slow, ambient-sounding ballad with this kind of, I've given up, I've given up, and I feel so much better, was the kind of chorus of that. I have a version of that that almost went on the album, but then I took that and turned it into Suspicious of Me. So most of the other songs were more straightforward to write, but that one was me taking bits and pieces from all these different kind of places and like jamming them together and seeing if it worked, and I like how it turned out. Most of it is me playing vibraphone and bass guitar and keyboards and singing and some of the kind of percussion and then extra musicians playing on it are susumu makai who is the person who makes music as zongamin 
um, and he's also in many other bands like Floating Points and uh, Vanishing Twin. He plays bass on Dreaming Another Life and he plays on Deep Cut, I think, and I Feel You. Leo Taylor plays drums on a few of the tracks. Tim did pretty much all the drum programming. Neil Haggerty added some guitar and backing vocals, plus he orchestrated brass and choir stuff for I Feel You. He did all of that after I'd already made most of the track. And the other people playing on that are John Coxon on guitar and Rob Smelton, who's in Hot Chip, and Black Peaches on drums, and Susumu Makai that I mentioned on bass. On Oh Baby, there's Sarah Jones, who plays with Hot Chip and now plays with Harry Styles on drums, Al Doyle from Hot Chip and LCD on bass, Owen from Hot Chip on synth and Joe producing the track. Uh, John Coxon is also playing piano and guitar on that song. We didn't really bring extra musicians in for every track, but it is, yeah, it is quite a big group of people when you sort of list them all. I was thinking at the beginning before, like maybe a year before making the record, that one thing I wanted to do was making an album a bit like All Things Must Pass by George Harrison, where it's maximalist and it's full of all of these wonderful players and I was thinking, you know, I get my favourite people that I've worked with and known all through my music career, get them all on everything. But instead, by the time I actually was making the record, it was much more of a me solo record, but then with just the right people brought in to, to add to the tracks. This, and this album is still quite maximal, I think. Yeah. It's a change of vibe. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Not yeah. so much pace, but vibe for sure. Yeah. I need a Another song I really like is a hit song. 
not just because I also think Donovan's Hurdy Gurdy is awful, but <laughs> like to imagine, I don't know, like you and Joe working on Katy Perry's album. I always have like a weird movie montage of that. They're not related at all, but in my hot chip mythos, that's a moment I'd, if I could be a fly on the wall, what yeah. those sessions were like. So that made you think that that song might be partly about that sort of experience. I project that onto the yeah. song. It's not, I mean, that's not really in my literal read of it. I guess that is a segue both to talk about a hit song and yeah. also your time working on the Katy Perry record. Sure. Well, um, in terms of a hit song, that is like a really kind of straightforward sentiment at the beginning of the track. You know, I was making an album, I was midway through making this album and part of me just felt like I did need to write something that would be released as a single you know that became Beautiful Thing and then Oh Baby but a hit song wasn't designed to be a hit song it was about needing that the record is partly about the process of making music partly about like being terrified of not making something uh, good enough when you've finally chosen to bring a producer in and you you've kind of raised the stakes in some way. What if you then dry up and don't have any material? Or You know, it's kind of about that. But it's also about much more than that. It's about how do you make something that means something to the people you care about, their opinion. And that might be like my wife, you know. Um, she probably would like me to make a hit song, like a, a kind of pop song, like Ready for the Floor or something by Hot Chip, or continue working with Katy Perry or do more things. And I think that's great that she would like that. She's, I don't mean she would want that because it would earn money but because I think she thinks Hot Chip are quite good at quite poppy things and maybe we could push further in that direction and make kind of interesting weird pop music uh, she doesn't really like piano ballads um, <laughs> and so my song was a little bit about that sort of tension actually between what I want to do on my own versus what's expected of me and that might be expected of me by you know the public and, and uh, critics not just my wife it's also about what's the point of a song you know is the song there just for you or is it there for other people to get some kind of emotional connection with i think it is about that so i'm talking about a song being successful as a song as a piece of songwriting i was talking about the discrepancy between something working as a piece of songwriting and it being successful in a more commercial way maybe something can be a success without making people dance or move or making or shifting units, it might be a success if it's reaching people and touching them. Or it might be a success if it affects you, the person making it. So I was kind of thinking about all of that. And whilst doing it, I'm talking about what I do generally in music, which is kind of bare my soul. And there are moments in the lyrics which are talking about that being my um, platform through which I express myself. So it's kind of metatextual in a way because it's about it's a song about itself and it's a song about the type of thing I do and it's a song about whether that whether that works and also whether or not it's going to reach its audience or find an audience or whether it's going to fail in that in that respect. And it's partly about kind of imagining some kind of dramatic scene as well, you know. I was watching Shirley Collins and she had a hurdy-gurdy player on stage. And I've always loved Shirley Collins' music since I first heard it. And her voice is very beautiful, I think, and really affecting. But also the sound of the hurdy-gurdy in that concert at the Barbican was just amazing. And I was kind of, I guess I was looking at the theatre of that show 
and started to think about some kind of dramatic scene within within the story of my song and you know somebody bearing their soul and and uh, and what they're singing about affecting somebody else and they're crying and it's kind of painful to to witness so the song is kind of about all of that I, yeah and to your point about uh, it being kind of metatextual I feel like it's almost the centerpiece of every really great singer-songwriter record to have a meta song, a song about writing a song or a song that just unravels from pen to paper to <laughs> release yeah. to just to have those real montage moments, which is why I think I probably thought of you and Joe working on Katy Perry's record. The thing that I found quite funny about working with Katy Perry was the track that she ended up using on the record was a piano ballad that was all about intimacy. And I right. and I just made a record called Piano that the sort of press release just kept using the word intimate to describe that record. And I kept using that word to describe it. And that's kind of what I tend to do in my solo music is try and make something very intimate and revealing. And so I really liked the fact that that was those were her lyrics. And that's apparently something she'd had. She'd written those words and tried them in a number of different song contexts before before and never really been happy with it but it was amusing to me that we tried to make like eight different kind of electro pop bangers and the one that made it onto the record was closer to what i'd just been doing i don't think she'd heard that music i'm not suggesting it was i think it's just coincidence but it was quite funny to me that that was what happened um and people would be you know saying oh which is which track is it that you did on the album like expecting it might be one of the singles or something but working with her was really enjoyable. Like, firstly, I like some of her music a lot, so it was not difficult to agree to work with her. It wasn't like, oh, that would be too pop or something. You know, I, li- I like some of her music a lot, and um, I guess I've heard it because my daughter really likes it too, and you hear it on the radio. But Joe and I were really up for, for the challenge of trying to make some pop music with her. She had a, a kind of great ability to come up with hooks and interesting melodies, memorable melodies, good lyrics really quickly when we were in the studio. She would kind of go into a different room from us having listened for a bit and come back in with loads of ideas and just throw lots of ideas at at all the tracks we we had time to work on with her and we kept thinking you know she probably won't use any of this she's already made like 32 songs she's been working on the album for two years but we'll give it a go and we were just really pleased when it when the record did include one of our tracks it didn't include the production she reproduced it with somebody else and we we have these nice versions of some of the tracks we began demoing for her that it would be interesting to hear them completed but that's probably never going to happen but i yeah i didn't i didn't find it too different from you know what it's like being in the studio with hot chip in a way we're trying to trying to make catchy poppy songs some of the time uh, i just thought she was maybe be- better at that than us <laughs> <laughs> the ballad the closer even without your production still has a bit of hot chip signature on it and yeah i do i will admit this was like a year or two after you guys had done need you now and all that and i was like oh we're going to get like a Katy Perry hot chip vocal house yeah. banger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I'm glad you were involved in any way. The song Oh Baby on my album, I wrote before we worked with Katy Perry. And we made a demo of Oh Baby that Joe, Joe and I worked on that sounded, it was for Katy Perry, but it sounded a bit more like what you'd imagine a hot chip version of Oh Baby to sound like. We gave that to her and then it turned into the song that's on the record but the chorus of my song the chords and melody from oh baby is still there in her song so there's actually a proper kind of overlap between the two songs which no one has picked up on but it was strange for me because i really liked that she included those elements but then i felt like i still want to put oh baby out on my own so how do i i have to get permission to release my own (laughs) my own song now because it's kind of morphed into becoming part of her song and she was really totally fine about it you know which is good
Last song on the record I'm going to mention is There's Nothing to Hide, which I think maybe was like my gateway into the record. Yeah. And it was such a straightforward vocal performance from you. And it reminded me a lot of Coming On Strong. Yeah. And, you know, at, at the top of the interview, I was describing that just today I realized I'd really been listening to Hot Chip half my life. And yeah. It just reminds me of how many people I've shared the music with, and it really means a lot to me and everyone else I know who listens to you, knowing that we can count on you guys to yeah. continue releasing records and yeah. developing yourselves and the group and other people, and it's it's just a nice point to be at. You haven't let me down. Do people say that to you often? I mean, it means a lot to me to hear how much what we've done is important to you. That That's like exactly why I make music and why I buy music by other people people you know i have such a strong relationship to the music of will oldham or prince or bob dylan or whoever it might be that i've that i've followed their like entire careers and kind of become attached to their their music and and what what they offer to the world that i've always wanted to do something similar with hot chip and my own music and i think joe feels the same way too you know you want to you want to make something of course you do that is like rewarding for on like repeated listens and you want to change each time you make a record too you want people to kind of feel like you're moving in a different direction sometimes and you want to surprise people you want to make people happy as well and you don't think about that all the time but it's definitely essential to to music making but i think that if it's too much about commercial ideas or pop song structure and not enough about how I feel inside, then it seems a bit kind of soulless or flat. And I, I think with Hot Chip, obviously there are people who don't feel this way about it, who don't get it or don't like it, but I think that people who do, do like it can sense that we're putting ourselves into the music and it's quite, at times, quite irreverent music and quite playful and at other times it's very sort of deep, I suppose. Um, and that's that's what I enjoy about other people's music so that's why I try and do something that's as good as the music that I like I suppose or just that affects people or me in, in, in some way like that that doesn't mean sitting down and studying other people's records it, it just means you know you want to do something that you hope there's an audience for and that they're actually kind of touched by it um, I've been finding that the ability to do that through Hot Chip is quite a special thing because when we began we were making what I consider to be quite strange music, really, but it found an audience. And we've had, luckily, an audience for years now. I hope there'll still be people there when we net play and still people buying or listening to the music. But you can't really take that stuff for granted. It's, you know, it could have just come out and totally not been met with any response at all. And my own solo music is not reaching that many people, but it's reaching some people. And um, I want that to reach more people because I really believe in it and, and love what I'm doing. But I'm also very aware that it's quite different from Hot Chip and it's not really for everyone. And uh, I, it just really highlights to me how amazing the thing is that, that we've managed to do with Hot Chip and, and that, that it's kind of allowed us to have careers and, and make music for a living. You know, I feel like that's quite special. There's nothing to hide in a song there's nothing to know outside this song there's nothing to hide in a song there's nothing to know outside the song Please visit the episode description for more information on Alexis Taylor's beautiful thing. I'd like to thank Brian Duran of Leg Up Management, Evan Taylor of Domino Records, and Pam Gerber for their help scheduling this interview. 
Record Room is produced and hosted by me, Will Felker. We're mixed and mastered by Federico Foglia. Our theme music is by Dawood Anthony and our artwork by Tom McQuaid. If you made it this far, you're a good person. 